Let's read the passage together. We'll read through the end of the chapter and then come back and break it down. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, 8. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter uh, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. For what, I have, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. And then Paul writes, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We're going to start the new year with a very easy passage, as you can see. Very positive. So we're going to need all the help we can get, so would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. It is illuminating and challenging. This is a passage that can confuse and even make some people ask some deep questions. But there's a reason that this is written. And it's written, actually, for the protection of the church and even the salvation of this individual. And I pray for clarity. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us. I pray that you would help us to have ears that are open to your truth. Because your word is inspired and it is profitable if we have ears to hear and a heart to obey. So help us in this new year to do some spring cleaning, Lord. We all need it. There's a lot of clutter in a lot of our lives. And the clutter gets in the way of things that you want to do. And you are constantly cleaning up my life. And I pray that we'd be open to that, Lord, and hear your voice and become vessels that are fit for the Master's use. Help us, Lord. We pray your blessing on this time together in your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we turn the calendar over and we begin to kind of set our sights as Christians toward Easter Sunday, the Jews had a religious calendar where they would begin to set their sights on the Passover. And it was the beginning of the religious calendar for them. And as they did so, they would go through literally a spring cleaning. And what they would do in preparation for the Passover is they would go and get all the leaven out of their house. So anything leavened, anything that had to do with bread or dough, they would literally go into the corners of the household and they would sweep them out. And you can find pictures on the internet of the process even done today where a father will take a wooden spoon and a feather and they will take a candle or a flashlight and they will go, and it's kind of a fun thing, they'll go throughout all the household and they'll look for any little crumb. Now, some of you have crumbs under your bed. When I was a teenager, I used to have french fries under the bed and stuff like that. My mom would say, what are you doing? My mom is a very clean woman. You can eat off the floor in my mom's house. It's that, it's that good. 
I'm not there. But anyway, so they would go through this process and the kids would get involved and the dad would take this feather and he wouldn't touch the leaven, but he would sweep with the feather the leaven onto the wooden spoon and they would wrap it in a linen cloth and then take it out to a communal bonfire to burn it. They did spring cleaning and preparation for the celebration of Passover, just like we as Christians need to do some spring cleaning in our lives in preparation for Easter. Some of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church know that they have a period of Lent. And Lent is not in the Bible, but it is something that Roman Catholics have done for many, many years to purge things out of their lives in preparation for a big holiday. Well, that does have roots in Scripture. It has roots in the Passover celebration in terms of how we prepare our hearts. And every week, I think, as we live our lives, we know it's very easy to pick up the old ways, to pick up the leaven of this world. Leaven is a picture of sin. It's a picture of evil. And we constantly have to have the Lord sweeping out the leaven in our lives. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, went into the temple. And he literally swept the evil out of his father's house. He told the money changers, you're not going to do this here in my father's house. This house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You, you've made it, made it a den of thieves. And the son literally swept out the father's house of the leaven. In fact, a good way to think about this passage from this point forward is to think in these terms. That Jesus was a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. But the ones that he was opposed to the most were religious hypocrites and phonies. In fact, finally in the temple he said to them after they rejected him over and over again, Your house is left to you desolate. They would not sweep out the old leaven. They would not welcome Jesus Christ into their lives. And so Jesus said, then you're going to get what you get without me. They were of the leaven of malice and wickedness. So the Corinthian church is set up. They're supposed to be impacting their culture, but there was a lot of problems going on. There was a lot of immorality. There was a man in the Corinthian church who had a relationship, and there's this is some adult content, but here's where we left off. He literally had a relationship with his father's wife. He was with her. We don't know if he married her. We don't know if they were living together. But it would appear that the father is still alive. And the son, who may have been a prominent member of the Corinthian church, perhaps even a leader, was now with his father's wife in an intimate relationship. The Apostle Paul said, uh-uh, this is not going to happen. This is not even something that happens among the pagans. And the Corinthian church was allowing it, perhaps because of the pressure of this man's personality, perhaps because he was a leader, whatever was going on, they would not confront him. And so the ministry of the church, the witness of the church to the pagan world was being muddied and ruined. And when our lives are a mess, when we're doing things worse than the world, what does the world do? The world looks at the church and says, really? What do you have to offer me? Your life is more a shambles than mine. And that's often what unbelievers do. They hang their hat on this stuff. 
And so Paul has addressed the issue of this man in that situation, and now he uses the metaphor, the picture of the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, which really went together. And he says these words. He says, clean, if you have an ESV, verse 7, cleanse, New King James, purge out, NIV, get rid of the old leaven. Now the leaven, in some translations, is yeast. But it's that which puffs up the bread. And the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread pretty much went together. They, on the 10th of Nisan, they would pick the lamb for each family without spot or blemish. On the 14th of the month, they would sacrifice the lamb at twilight. And then on the 15th through the 21st, and you can find this in the Old Testament, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Over the years, what happened is Passover and unleavened bread basically uh, were linked together and seen as one holiday. So when you talk Passover in the Jewish context, you're also really talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, literally the Feast of Matzah. Some of you have had matzah. You can go to Stater Brothers and buy a package of matzah. And what it is is it's bread without yeast. It's, it's not puffed up. It's almost like a cracker. It's what we're going to actually partake of at the end of this service. And when you get the little wafer, you are eating a piece of matzah. We don't pass around a loaf of French bread, <laughs> although I suppose that could work. We don't want to nitpick things, but here's the deal. The Jewish Passover was actually celebrated with unleavened bread. So that's why you get a cracker that's this short little, you know, uh, thing without leaven because that honors the essential nature of the feast. And so here's the Apostle Paul. He's obviously a Jewish man who's been converted to Christ. And he uses this image that is very Jewish. He says, do some spring cleaning, verse 7, clean out, get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Stop acting like an old lump. Apparently that's biblical to say to your loved ones, especially if they're sitting on a chair eating too much. You could say, stop being an old lump. <laughs> right? It's time to embrace the new life. It's time to be in your walk what you are before the Lord. It's time to clean out Get rid of the old leaven. We, we need to see this in light of sin in the camp in the Corinthian church. And the Corinthians are brought the solution to really every problem with sin. You ready? Buckle your seatbelt. Here's the solution for every problem you have with sin. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. What? Yes. You see, if you keep sin for the next indulgence, whatever your weakness may be, whether it's with a computer or a television or a magazine, or there's a person that continues to bring you down, or there's a chemical or a food or whatever it is, the biblical remedy is get rid of it. Don't put it in a closet in some hidden place just for the next time that you decide to fall. Because if you do that, you have set yourself up for failure. I love to use the illustration of ice cream because it's near and dear to my heart. 
And I'm, I have a lot of house cleaning to do after what I ate over the holidays. Anybody else? I got some serious spring cleaning to do. I joined five gyms at the beginning of January just to say I belong to them. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. But that's what a lot of people do, right? So let's say that you have a problem with Snickers bars. This is a very personal illustration. And let's say that you say, all right, it's the beginning of January in the new year. No more Snickers. You got on the scale. You know, it's not even able to read your weight right now. But you take the Snickers and you put them in a little cubby to hide them from the children and grandchildren. Just in case. In case what? In case you fall to Snickers. You see what you've done. And now, yeah, amen. Somebody said, somebody out there, Snickers, can I get an amen? Anyway, and you walk by the place where you know they are, and you're like, oh, Lord, help me. Right? That's just silliness. In order to overcome something, and it, of course, you still need the Lord's strength, it's to get it out of your life. It's to do some spring cleaning. It's to clean out the clutter. It's to purge it. It's to get rid of it that you may be a new lump. Notice verse 7. Language is a little tricky, but I think we'll all get it. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. What do you mean, Pastor Michael, I'm unleavened? Right now, before the Lord, because of what Christ has done, if you're a Christian, you are without sin before the Lord. What? What do you mean, without sin? I hear people saying all the time, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Well, you are. But before the Father, because you have the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account, right now you're clean before the Father. You are a new lump. Praise the Lord. You thought, man, I've never been called that before, a new lump. Wow. But in, in the biblical language, that means you're unleavened. That means sin has been dealt with once for all through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all time. Praise the Lord. This is what we celebrate every Lord's Day. We celebrate our salvation in Christ. We celebrate a free gift given to us by grace. But Paul is saying, look, sweep out the old leaven because that's not who you are anymore. For Christ, end of seven, our Passover also has been sacrificed. You see, for the Jews, what did they do? On Friday of Passover week, they sacrificed a lamb per household. And remember, in the first Passover, they took the blood of the lamb, and what did they do? They applied it to the, the post of the door and to the lentil. And when God passed over Egypt and he was judging the false gods of Egypt, when he saw the blood, everyone in that household was passed over. They did not experience judgment. Why? Because of the blood of the lamb. Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of that imagery. Jesus is our Passover. Everybody with me? He, by his blood applied to our lives, causes God's judgment to pass over us now. If you are under the blood, God is not going to judge you. Praise the Lord. That's really good news. You are new in Jesus Christ, a new creation. Christ is our Passover. Now, for a Jewish person celebrating Passover, they think about liberation. They think about freedom from the old life. They think about freedom after hundreds of years in bondage to Egypt 
a type of the world. Pharaoh, a type of Satan. The taskmasters whipping them in the mud pits, a type of besetting sin. And when the Passover happened and the last plague happened, the death of the firstborn, and they were protected by the blood, they went out. And when they went out, they went out in freedom. And they were celebrating the Lord and His power. And they were saying, finally, we're free. What we've been praying for for hundreds and hundreds of years, we have experienced. We are now free, free to be who we are, free not to be surrounded with the pagan deities of Egypt, free not to be at the whim of Pharaoh, whatever he says we have to do, free not to watch our women ravaged and our men die in the mud pits. That's a major, major happening. And so they went out. But even though they went out in the light of God's power and deliverance, what happened to Israel? Well, Israel got to the desert and they weren't walking like a free people. In fact, because of their unbelief and their whining and their complaining, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Some of you have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ and you continue to do this. You continue to wander, although you are free in Christ, you're wandering in the wilderness. And can I say to you, at some point, it's time to take the off-ramp? Everybody know what I'm saying? See, some of you have been in a vicious circle for so long. You're not walking in the freedom that Jesus, with which he's made you free. You haven't taken the off-ramp. You just continue to do this, even though you're a Christian even though you're born again. And this is what Israel did. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we have, been, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside or put away every encumbrance, every weight, every burden, and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sometimes we clean out a part of our house and we stuff it in a closet. <laughs> Then we open the door of that closet and everything comes down. God's saying, look, I I want you to get the stuff out of your life that's becoming a weight on you. And so, having been delivered from Pharaoh, a type of Satan, Egypt, a type of the world, the old besetting, besetting sins, the taskmasters, why would you let them rule over you again? You're free. But how many times did Israel whine How many times did they say, caravans back to Egypt, baby? It's too hard here in the wilderness. It's too hard trying to get to the promises of God. And so they whined and complained. In Acts 7.39, Stephen says to the religious leadership of Israel, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts, please hear this, in their hearts, Acts 7.39, they turned back to Egypt. And look, the same old battle exists for us as believers. We get set free by Jesus. We're excited. We're singing salvation songs. We're telling people about our new life. But sometimes the Christian life is hard. Amen? Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes the things of the flesh, the world, and a foothold for the devil, sometimes we just open up our lives again to that stuff. And it doesn't take much to find ourselves right back in slavery again even though technically we're free. 
Why would the children of Israel ever want to return to a place where they and their children and grandchildren were enslaved? You ever read your Bible and just went, what? How many miracles did they see? How, how many mud dances? How many people died in Egypt? How many prayers were prayed for freedom? And then once they were set free, they started selling tickets for caravans back to the place of slavery. And sometimes, if we're honest, that's what we do. We forget. Instead of cleaning out the clutter, we get involved with all kinds of issues and problems. I want you to turn all the way to the book of Numbers. I'm going to give you an example. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I want to show you one account of how it went for these people. And this is about them complaining. And some of you in the new year need to clean out the clutter of complaining. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Don't look at the person that you think this applies to. Don't hit them in the ribs. Uh, maybe you should. Go ahead and hit them. No, I'm just kidding. Right? So we, we can tend to complain. But let, let me just park for, here for a second and ask you, if you were to be asked right now, by someone who loves you, what one thing do you think you need to clean out in the new year? Maybe you'd say, I got 17 of them. Okay, let's start with the top couple. What, what do you think needs to be purged out of your life in this new year? This is a good time to be thinking about those things. So check this out. This is Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people, that is Israel, became like those who complain of adversity. Numbers 11, 1. In the hearing of the Lord, when the Lord heard it, and by the way, he does hear your complaints even in your car on the freeway. His anger, when the Lord heard the complaining, his anger, Numbers 11.1, 1, was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of the place was called Taberah. It means burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. Also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat? Uh, by the way, this is where the uh, statement came, Where's the beef? How many of you remember that commercial from Wendy's? Man, this is dating us. Go ahead and raise your hand, because then I won't feel all alone. Where's the beef? All right, here's, write this down. This is from the book of Numbers. So they said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we used to eat for free. They had fish Friday in Egypt, and it was free fish. Yeah, we were in slavery and all that stuff, but never mind that. It was free fish Friday. It was glorious. And there we were. We had, we had in Egypt, well, you know, yeah, we were slaves, but in Egypt we had the cucumbers and the melons, and the leeks, and this is the Italian translation, the onions and the garlic. But now, our appetite is gone. How many of you have gone on a diet where they make you eat those, those weird, crunchy, what are they called? They're not bread. They're rice cakes. <laughs> yes! And you eat them and you feel like your teeth are falling out of your jaw. 
It's like not even worth eating. And no wonder people quit a diet after half a day. What can you have on that diet? Well, you get these rice cakes and you, you can put some, uh, some peanut butter on them. Yeah, that, that makes it better. It's not dry enough. So check this out. They said, our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Some of you just need to write your children's names right here, right? Now, the manna was like coriander seed. Its appearance like that of bdellium. Uh, the NIV has resin. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. How many of you wouldn't mind a diet of cake every day? What are they complaining about? You get to eat cake every day. Do you guys know that pancakes are still cake? No. Yeah, they're pancakes. Anyway. I didn't eat anything bad for me. It was a pancake. Yeah, it's a cake. And then you put syrup and butter on it. Right? This is a dream diet for me. Cake every day? But you know how we are. We get sick of things, right? So, description, when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. Each man at the doorway of his tent and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So check this out. The context, the people are crying. What are they crying about? They don't have any meat. <laughs> but it's in the whole camp. Can you imagine being the leader of this group of people? They're all crying because they don't like what they're served every day, even though that food is the miracle and even called the bread of angels. So Moses said to the Lord, Why hast thou been so hard on thy servant? Verse 11. Why have I not found favor in thy sight, and thou hast laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Some of you are going, Oh yeah, thank you Moses. I needed to hear this. Was it I who brought them forth, that thou should say to me, Carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which thou didst swear to their fathers? Lord, can I translate? They're a bunch of crybabies. They're all boo-hooing at the front of their tents about the fact that they don't have any meat to eat. I didn't bear these people. I didn't carry them in my womb. What am I going to do? And so he said, where am I to get meat to give all this people? Do you remember Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? Now, is Moses showing a little lack of faith here? What's he just seen God do in Egypt? All these incredible miracles. And now, now Moses is questioning, right? We're going to get meat for all these people. He says, for they weep before me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. Maybe people were even carrying signs around. Maybe it was a, a group of protesters. Give us meat that we may eat. Give us meat that we may eat. Can you imagine Moses? Peeking out the window in the morning. Give us meat that we may eat. 
<laughs> you can imagine why he said, Lord, I'm sick of it. <laughs> and there were thousands and thousands of them. He said, I alone am not able to carry all this people. It's too burdensome for me. Check this out. If you are not going to deal with thus, if you, if thou art going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. <laughs> if I have found favor in your sight, do not let me, oh, I mark this. Lord, do not let me see my wretchedness. Oh, Lord. I don't want to look at my wretchedness. Because my response to these people is so ugly. My response to their whining is so terrible for me to look at. Moses, in a very human moment, the most humble man that ever lived, an incredible godly man, says, Lord, just, I can't do it anymore. I'm sick of watching what their behavior does to me in your sight. You ever get to that point in your own life and walk where you just say, Lord, I don't want to look at my wretchedness anymore. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, let them take their stand there with you. It's good to have others when you're struggling. Sometimes it feels like maybe you're all alone in leadership, etc. And so the Lord promises that he's going to uh, use them and fill them, etc. And so look at 18. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? God said, you want meat? Okay. You're going to get it until it's coming out your nose. Man, radical, right? This freed Passover people in the wilderness, boo-hooing at the front of their tents. And God said, enough is enough. You ever been there with your children? Oh, you want that? Okay, you're going to get it, all right, until it's coming out your nose. So this is what happens. So, Moses said, the people among who, who, whom I am are 600,000 on foot. Probably they're the men. Yet thou hast said, I will give them meat in order that they may eat for a whole month. That's a big number. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? This is what the apostles asked Jesus. Where, where are we going to get bread for all these people? And there were only about, what, 5,000 plus women and children? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Skip all the way down to 31. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on, the side, on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, 
about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. So there were a lot of them. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Uh, he who gathered least gathered ten homers, which is uh, hitting it over the fence in baseball. No, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> sorry, 50 bushels in the New Living Translation. So it was a lot. Each person got a lot. They spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. The Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of gluttony, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. This is just one of many <laughs> stories, right? Where the Israelites, instead of being grateful for what they had, complained about what they didn't have. And one of the areas, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians, that I think we need to clean out in our lives, or maybe we need to embrace, is contentment. This world beats on us to make us believe that unless we get that thing, that car, that house, that level, that, you know, investment, whatever it may be. And I'm not saying those things in and of themselves are bad. But sometimes we live our lives just for the next thing. What we don't have, instead of talking about our freedom in Christ and the incredible miracles that he's doing in our lives, we start complaining about everything we don't have. You might say, well, Pastor Michael, what's the remedy? The remedy is to be a new lump. <laughs> the remedy is to do some sweeping in your life regularly a steady diet of the scriptures will help. Uh, taking the word of God to get the right perspective. Love and encouragement of other believers. Regular times of prayer and praise. Sharing your faith with the lost. We don't want to just survive. We want to thrive. Amen? But man, we've got some unique challenges in our culture. Things at our fingertips. Things that we think we need to be happy. And so Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 5, Let us therefore celebrate the feast, he's been using the feast of Passover or unleavened bread, not with old leaven. You see, we need to live a celebratory life, not going back to the old stuff, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, let's celebrate our new life. Let's celebrate Christ as our Passover, not with the old junk of the old life, but let's celebrate it with the new. Let's be sincere, which means pure. Let's be people of truth. Let's do what we say we believe. Not in wickedness, which is a stronger word than badness, uh, one writer says, anyone who does wrong is bad, but someone who does evil with delight and persistency is wicked. Even Satan is called the evil or the wicked one. Let's clear our hearts. Let's be pure. Let's be sincere. Verse 9. I wrote you, and we don't have this writing, but obviously this indicates that this was an ongoing issue for the Corinthian church. Verse 9. In my letter, not to associate with immoral people. See the word associate in verse 9? 
It's a long Greek word. I won't try to pronounce it, but it means to mix together, to be intimate with. Here's one writer from a commentary. commentary. He says, The image of associate is that of a vine weaving around and attaching itself to the trunk of a tree. That's what is to be avoided. Because when relationships get that intertwined, it's hard to see clearly, it's hard to see objectively, no matter how objective one thinks he can be. Don't get intertwined in this way. Now we need to park here for a second. As parents, sometimes we've said to our child, that person is bad news for you. We do it as parents, right? If we see a relationship intertwined with someone we love and we say, "Uh uh-oh, that person is dragging that other person down that I care about and love, we say, cut the ties, don't be intertwined because that is going to destroy you. This is the language. And if we would do it as parents, how much more should we think that God would do it? That God would say, I don't want that thing choking you. I don't want that thing bringing you down. But get this. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Paul says, when I told you, when I wrote that to you, I wasn't talking about your non-Christian friends at work. I wasn't talking about your non-Christian friends in your family or family members. I wasn't talking about people on your street who don't know the Lord. I wasn't talking about people of the world because if you cut ties with them, you'd have to go out of the world. Amen? You couldn't go to work anymore. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go to the store. Oh, there's unbelievers here. Right? That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul says, then you would have to leave the world. I know that this world is filled, of covetous, filled with covetous people, swindlers who extort by violence, idolaters. But if you did that, you'd have to leave the world. Now I want to show you one other cross-reference in John 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Check this out. This is Jesus praying right before he dies for his people, John 17. It's called his great high priestly prayer. Look at verse 15. John 17, 15. Jesus prays for his people and says, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, John 17, 15, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then notice, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, Father. I'm asking you to sanctify them, set them apart so much in the truth that they become salt and light in the world. Back to 1 Corinthians, and we'll finish here. Can I ask you, do you think that the modern church has got this one right or wrong? Are we investing in relationships with unbelievers, spending time with them, in order to reach them with the gospel? Or have we, as the believing church in America, decided that we are going to judge everybody in the world, believe that they should be living up to the moral standards of the Bible, when the Bible is actually telling us we can't expect them to embrace our morals, they need to embrace Christ, and then the rest will take care of itself. Amen? 
Now, we've all probably got this wrong. Where we've cloistered in the church, expected the world to embrace the biblical values that we embrace, we don't want to be with the world because we don't want them to influence us, and so we separate ourselves, cloister in our churches, and ruin the opportunity for us to witness to people. We should expect unbelievers to have filthy mouths, to tell filthy jokes. Now, you have to be wise about how you carry this out. You don't want to get sucked back into the world. We all understand that. But unless you have relationships with unbelievers, you'll never reach them. Amen? Example, Jesus. What did he do? He was at parties that people thought, what's he doing there? Doesn't he know what kind of person that is? The religious hypocrites were judging Jesus, but Jesus was among the broken and the hurting in order to what? To show them the truth, to show them the love of God, to grant them grace and forgiveness and hope. And we have been given that mantle to take into a broken world. Can I challenge you? to prayerfully consider in this year how many relationships do you have with non-Christians where you're working on them, and I'm not talking about beating them over the head with your Bible, but I'm talking about you have a relationship in some context where you're actually praying for and trying to reach an unbeliever. It'd be really good if we did that because that's what we're called to do. Paul says, I actually, verse 11, wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, NIV, he who calls himself a brother, New Living Translation, someone who claims to be a believer if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, a character assassin or someone who's constantly drunk or someone who's ripping people off, a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. I wasn't talking about your atheist friend at work, I was talking about a person who claims to be a believer and continues to bring you down and you continue to live ungodly ways because they do it too and they claim to be a Christian. Oh my goodness. Does that change a little bit of maybe our perspective on really what we're supposed to be careful about? And can I say to you, this is an extreme case this is not about a Christian friend who's struggling with sin. This is not about someone who's just battling with the world flesh and the devil. We all do that. This is someone who says, I am a Christian, claim, but I'm going to continue in my defiant behavior, even though I know it's unbiblical, because I believe I'm the exception. And I believe you should join me in that behavior they might say to you. It's okay. That's what you have to guard yourself against. You see, in some ways, the church has gotten it tragically wrong. We cannot be separatists and win the world. That is not what Jesus did. The ones Jesus actually condemned and separated himself from, ultimately, were religious hypocrites, phonies. He left them to their own ways. Not someone sincerely struggling with sin, but someone who claims to be religious but doesn't have one shred of evidence that they walk with God. We're going to have to do some reanalyzing and reassessing how we respond to this section. And I will tell you, even though it's challenging, I think 
its extreme cases. <clears throat> Two primary application points. Write these verses down. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Those who are hurting the body of Christ. Uh, here, Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says, I've delivered over to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 1, 20. Second example, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Their talk, 2 Timothy 2.17, will spread like gangrene, connected to the image of spreading of leaven. That's Hymenaeus and Philetus, 2 Timothy 2.17. Let me simplify it. If someone is in the church and their immoral behavior is leading a bunch of people astray or their doctrine is leading a bunch of people astray, that's who this section is addressing. In the first century, it would be people who, say, who would say, since I'm saved by grace, I can do whatever I want with my body. I, I can be sexually loose. I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, no. If that person continues that mindset, that person's not good for you. And one of the applications of sweeping out is even people. Now, some of you say, we're in church. Did he really say that? Yes, here's why. Have you ever had someone in your life who you would identify as toxic? I think we all probably would say yes. And you continue to be intertwined with that person and the toxicity rubbed off on you. You have to be careful about your relationships. Careful about who you are in intimate relationships with. And so... These things do spread. They do impact the church. In the last two verses, because I know you can't take much more. <laughs> For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Let God deal with them, the world. And then Paul finally says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, this is an extreme case of excommunication. The man would not repent of a relationship with his father's wife, and Paul says, boot him out if he won't repent. I don't care who he is. Get him out of there, because he's hurting you, and he's hurting himself. Now, go back to verse 5 and check this out. When Paul says for him to be delivered over to Satan, it's for the destruction of his flesh that what? His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Two points I want you to think about. One, it's for the protection and purity of the church. Two, it's for the salvation of this man. Paul's motivation for him is that he would be saved, and Paul's motivation for the church is that it would be saved from his influence. Everybody with me? So we circle right back around to motive if we have to deal harshly with someone, draw a strong boundary in a relationship, it is for the sake of love, and our motivation should be restoration of that person. You see, if you don't do it, if you don't draw the boundary, and of course this is an extreme case, remember, but if you don't draw that boundary, you co-sign that person's behavior, and you allow them to continue to spread the toxicity among those whom you want to be pure. Amen? Oh, I didn't hear it. You see, that's why you draw the boundary in your life for the sake of staying pure. 
keep in mind what his behavior was. It was obviously something that even the pagans looked down on. And so this man is going to be asked to leave. The motivation is salvific. It's for the salvation of the man. So there is care for him as an individual as well. Him being confronted that he's not okay might make him really look at his life. Have you noticed that when people get caught up in sinful behaviors, for the most part, they tend to disappear from church? So cases where there has to be some formal thing done where a person is actually asked to leave are rare because most people who are caught, who are caught up in unrepentant sinful patterns will fade away from the church anyway, have you noticed? Because they don't want to hear the word of God. And so this obviously needs great wisdom. Now, we're going to be passing the elements of communion. We're going to celebrate together. I'm going to leave you with this story. When Leonardo da Vinci was painting his masterpiece, The Last Supper, he selected as the person to sit for the character of Christ a young man named Pietri Bandinelli. He was connected with the Milan Cathedral. He was part of the choir. Years passed before the great picture was completed. And when one character only was needed, that of Judas Iscariot, the great painter noticed a man in the streets of Rome whom he selected as a model to be Judas. With shoulders far bent toward the ground, having an expression of cold, hardened evil, sadly monstrous, the man seemed to afford the opportunities of a model terribly true to the artist's conception of Judas. When in the studio, the haggard man began to look around as if recalling incidents of years gone by. Finally, he turned and with a half-sad look, yet one which told how hard it was to realize the change which had taken place, he said to da Vinci, Maestro, I was in this studio 25 years ago. I then sat for Christ. He was the model, quarter of a century before that da Vinci used to paint Jesus. And 25 years later, he was the model he used to paint Judas. Wow. That illustrates the point. 